0: Hello and welcome to the 38th episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Corr, host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, was published today and can be ordered through his website, robertperlmd.com. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin this show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What happened and
1: what does it mean? Jeremy, you're a historian and I know you are familiar with the phrase, tide of war. It indicates the shift from when a conflict you're losing turns in your favor in the same way that a rising tide makes the ocean deeper rather than making it shallower. The past week has been such a time period for our nation in our battle against COVID-19. The number of new cases is now under 40,000 and that level hasn't been seen since September when we accomplished it through major social distancing requirements. And not a single state at present is increasing in the number of cases that is happening, and quite a number of states have had zero deaths on several days in this past week. Deaths overall are at the lowest level since last July, averaging 600 per day, with 99.7% of them, almost 100% occurring in patients who aren't fully vaccinated, according to a study from the Cleveland Clinic. Remember, deaths were over 2,000 a day earlier this year. Hospitalizations similarly are falling. To date, 160 million Americans have had at least one vaccine dose, with over 120 million people having had both. As a consequence of all of this, we're seeing many pre-pandemic activities moving back towards pre-COVID-19 levels, although still lagging significantly in absolute numbers. As an example, the New York City subway system is once again open 24 hours per day, and it saw its highest daily readership last week since March of 2020. Planes are getting crowded, with more than 1.7 million people flying last weekend, the most since the start of the pandemic, and according to OpenTable restaurant bookings have reached their 2019 levels. Overall, 28 states are now fully reopened, with 22 states having eliminated the mask requirement. There's so many good things happening at present that we should be celebrating as a nation.
0: Ravi, as you know, with a young son, I am always wanting more information on COVID-19 in kids, especially young ones. What's new?
1: Jeremy, although your son is still too young to qualify, Based on the newest FDA action, the FDA did approve the Pfizer vaccine for teens aged 12 to 15. In clinical trials, they studied 2,200 teenagers, 18 of whom developed COVID 19. And in all of the 18 cases, the kids who tested positive were the ones who had been given the placebo shot, not the actual mRNA vaccine. That's a remarkable success, 100%. And it's an important piece of data and approval authorization as we push closer to herd immunity. In the United States, there are about 17 million teens between 12 and 15, or approximately 5% of the American population. As such, they represent a significant percentage of people who remain unvaccinated and potentially reservoirs for this virus. But of course, getting all of them vaccinated will require their parents to be proactive, and surveys show a mixed enthusiasm. In fact, based on a recent Axios poll, they are split almost down the middle as to whether they will get their children vaccinated or whether they will take a watch and waiting or decide that they're never going to do it.
0: Robbie, quite a number of my friends who have received both doses of the vaccine are telling me how good they feel knowing they're essentially completely protected from serious disease. How widespread
1: is this optimism? The optimism of your friends and their improved psychological well-being mirrors what is happening elsewhere. For the first time in over a year, fewer than half of Americans, 43% to be exact, feel that returning to the activities they participated in prior to the pandemic would be a large or moderate risk or phrase differently. 57% of people no longer feel that's the case. Before this week, fear was the emotion of the majority. That's no longer the case. And the reason for the change, of course, are the two thirds of respondents who have obtained at least one COVID-19 vaccine dose. In the same survey when people asked whether individuals should have to show proof of vaccination before being allowed to return to work or attend a sporting event, it was a split decision. 55% of respondents said that people should be required to have proved vaccination before they could return to in-person jobs. 57% should be needed to be admitted to a sporting event. And I would assume that it would also apply to concerts and bars. Less than half of respondents thought that proof of vaccination should be required for shopping and eating out without being masked. Of interest, 62% of respondents said that they've asked family members whether they've had the vaccine and close friends about whether they are vaccinated and that 20% of employers had asked them about their vaccination status, but only 5% of the respondents said that their employers were requiring vaccination in order to return to work. One of the pieces of the study that I found very surprising was that among people 18 to 29, 75% said, that vaccination should be required to attend school or work in person. And 37% of them said they wouldn't come back to work or school unless that requirement were in place. Even among people in this age group who aren't yet vaccinated, two thirds said they would get the vaccine if it were mandatory. There were 15% who said they'd rather switch jobs or schools. 13% said they'd find a way to get an exemption, and 2% said they would just forge the document if that was required.
0: Robbie, with the current school year drawing to a close, what's likely to happen in the fall? Do you think my son should be wearing a mask when he goes to kindergarten in the fall?
1: Jeremy, when it comes to this coronavirus, it is risky trying to predict what will happen four months into the future. But there's optimism to expect a more normal school experience. As we said, the FDA has already approved the Pfizer vaccine for all adolescents 12 and older. And there's no reason to expect that the Moderna vaccine won't get the same green light. And tests are already on looking at younger age children down to the age of your son. What we've seen is that in middle school and high school, it's these students who seem at greatest risk from getting the coronavirus and becoming ill. To date, although children are at very low risk for serious infection, there have been 1.5 million documented COVID-19 infections in 11 to 17 year olds. Based on the success the nation is having with vaccination and the most recent CDC guideline that you referenced, that fully vaccinated people could resume normal activities without masks, Anthony Fauci said that when schools would be reopened, it should be with a full blast five days a week come to September. But when he was pressed as to whether this means that children don't have to wear masks, such as your son, he wouldn't commit, and merely said it was possible depending on CDC guidance. On the other hand, he did commit to the idea that vaccinated shoppers would not have to wear a mask Although he didn't say how stores could be sure that the unvaccinated people did not remove their masks at well, he didn't favor the creation of federally issued vaccine passports. When it comes to your son, it is safer to be wearing a mask than not wearing a mask. If the vaccine is approved in kids down to his age, he should be vaccinated and then he wouldn't need to wear a mask at school. I think we're talking right now about this interim period where the risks are very small, but of course, when something goes wrong, it's quite a tragedy for that child, for their friends, for the family, for the school. And I think when it comes to young children, minimizing the risk of a tragedy, to me, is the highest priority. The most common question I'd say we're
0: probably getting these days is about herd immunity. Can you help listeners understand what it is and why it is so important? And are we, are we there yet? Are we close to it? Jeremy, herd
1: immunity is both a simple concept and an incredibly complex calculation. Under normal circumstances, the transmissibility of a virus can be calculated by observing the number of people who are infected at any given time and seeing how many new infections happen over the time frame required for one round of viral replication. But that assumes normal social distancing and there's no such thing. Maybe under normal circumstances, 10 infected people will transmit the disease to 30 new individuals, but put them in a conference room or enclosed arena, and the number could be 10 infected individuals giving it to 60 or even 600. These are the so-called super events. And at the same time, we're on the other hand, implement an enforce strict social distancing and the number could drop from 10 people giving it to 30 to 10 to only 15 or maybe even 10. In this example, 10 is the magic number and it's the start of herd immunity. Let me explain. Think about it this way, if 10 people end up infecting only eight, then the eight will only infect six and six will affect four and so on until the virus either disappears or at least becomes progressively insignificant. Herd immunity implies that unvaccinated individuals get protected by the actions of the herd, by which that means that when enough people are vaccinated, and the virus starts disappearing from that population, those who are not vaccinated still will be protected because they're not going to come in contact with the virus. When it comes to the current pandemic, Jeremy, we're not there yet. This current coronavirus, when it first came ashore, sure, what we observed was that. 10 people would give it to 30. And, of course, the 30 would now give it to 90. And then 90 on to 270. And that's why we saw early in the pandemic exponential growth and why masks and social distancing became the norm. With this degree of transmissibility, if you think about it, we'd need two-thirds of the people to be vaccinated, or about 75% of the adult population. If two-thirds of the people are vaccinated, then rather than one person giving it to three, two of those three will be immune, and so they would only give it to one other person, and the number of cases would stay constant across time. Of course, this would be a national average, and any given community with a larger unvaccinated population you would see the virus continuing to spread, whereas in those that were almost fully vaccinated, you would see it be disappearing at the same time. But the reason scientists are suggesting that this virus may be around for many years, similar to what we see with the seasonal flu coming back year over year over year, is that there will always be pockets of people unvaccinated who will be the source of infection, and it will be a risk unless we can reach the point where every community is at herd immunity. But herd immunity has become more difficult over the past several months for two reasons. The first is the new mutants. Rather than these changed viruses infecting 30 people, after 10 have the disease, the 10 people pass it on to 50 due to the greater transmissibility. Now, rather than having to have two thirds of people be immune in order to see the total number of cases progressively decline on its own, it would require four out of the five people or 80%. And the second reason is continued vaccine hesitancy which makes it unlikely that we can reach this 80% of the total population threshold. And there's even one more factor that needs to be included in the equation, and that's the efficacy of the vaccine. With both the Pfizer and Moderna having a 95% efficacy, when you vaccinate 200 million people, in general terms, 190 people will become immune. A new variant that let's say is somewhat resistant to the antibodies produced through vaccination, let's say it's 80% efficient, that means that vaccinating 200 million people would only produce immunity in 160 million individuals. Of course, all this is speculative. We don't know the exact numbers. These viruses are continually changing. However, there are some people who believe that the reason that seven coaches and other staff on the Yankees and one player so far have tested positive for COVID-19 after being vaccinated. Maybe this exact phenomenon in which the viral mutants are able to grab hold despite immunity being present. And at the same time, what we're seeing are the cases are relatively asymptomatic, which is the positive side of the vaccine and are only picked up because of league protocols. Across the United States today, the most common virus that we find is the one from Great Britain. It is a viral mutant and 70% of the infections in our country have this B117 genetic structure. Although we can't be sure, researchers are thinking that the same thing could be happening relative to the vaccine from China. The so-called Sinopharm COVID-19 vaccine is felt to be only 78% effective. And that was in young people, the only population tested with results published to date. And if this is accurate, it helps explain why the nation of Setchels, the country with the highest vaccination rate in the world, just saw a huge spike in cases since it was the Sinopharm vaccine that had been administered. I think you can see why I said herd immunity is both simple and incredibly complex. And for listeners, I've left out dozens of other factors that make the calculation even more difficult. Let's put it this way in the end. If we can vaccinate almost the whole population and we can do it soon, we can rid our nation of this pandemic at least until some new variant comes from some other part in the world, and hopefully by being able to vaccinate people across the globe will prevent this from occurring.
0: Robert, you published a Forbes article yesterday on what's happening in India.
1: Can you uh, update listeners on the tragedy that's unfolding? Jeremy, the carnage there is unimaginable. The reported number of new infections a day is over 4,000, but that's a tiny fraction of the real number. Remember that people in India today can't even get into overrun hospitals. They're dying outside of locked gates. So the number of people being tested, it can't be much more than about 10 or 20%. And that means that India is really experiencing two to 4 million new cases a day. And as a result, the death toll is growing incredibly high. And it too is grossly underreported as people are dying at home without COVID being documented as the cause of death. As a result, this horrific disease is overwhelming crematoriums and thousands of bodies are being turned into bone and ash in parking lots across the nation each night. Some epidemiologists believe that India's exploding death rate can be traced to the new variant known as B1617, a variant with 13 mutations, three of which are associated with higher transmissibility, which is what led the World Health Organization to designate it as a variant of concern. I titled the article in Forbes how India's COVID-19 tragedy was almost America's reality since at the start of 2021, when the US was experiencing 100,000 to 200,000 cases a day, India had only 20,000 or so. And when you correct for the population of India, 1.4 billion compared to 330 million Americans, we had 20 to 40 times more disease in the United States, more infections than in India. Around the same time, both nations relaxed their social distancing requirements, but our numbers in cases dropped while theirs soared. The only explanation for our nation's increasing safety is the vaccine. In this article, I pointed out how our success was a combination of both great science and massive luck. Had the vaccine taken two years, not just one to develop, which by the way, would still have been half the time of the fastest vaccine ever developed on record, or had one of the new highly transmissible variants come to our shores six months earlier, or had the spike protein on the particular coronavirus not been such a perfect target for the mRNA vaccine, our nation's mortality would be easily past one million Americans today, And we too would have more bodies needing disposal than the ability to do so. I concluded the article by suggesting that people who refuse to be vaccinated should be required to watch one hour of video from India. They'd see bodies burning in open fields beneath teepees of dried lumber. They'd see critically ill patients choking to death in hospitals that had run out of oxygen. And maybe, after seeing these horrific images, they'd realize that India's COVID-19 tragedy would be our present reality without a vaccine, and then they decide to get protected. As I listen to people looking forward to further easing of restrictions, I hear a sentiment that a successful vaccine was, let me say, inevitable. It wasn't. No effective vaccine had ever been developed by Moderna despite two decades of trying. And remember that Merck, a sophisticated drug company, completely failed in their efforts, And this week, Novavax, an American company, said they would need to push back regulatory approval for their vaccine from June to the end of September. And even that isn't definite. Getting a vaccine designed, manufactured, tested, and distributed in under 12 months was a big bet and one that we won. But it was far, far, far from an inevitability or even a priority that we could count upon. And we're not fully out of the woods yet. And this new variant, the one we're finding in India, the World Health Organization, WHO, has already identified in 30 countries, including the US, the UK, France, and Japan. Unfortunately, When it comes to COVID infection, each day we're seeing new information, new evidence, a lot of success, and a continued small amount of fear. Robbie, in a previous episode, we had
0: talked about how early in the clinical course of a COVID-19 infection, we had a listener write in wondering whether it was okay to be taking ibuprofen for a back problem,
1: or if that would increase his chances of becoming very ill. Jeremy, as you know, we don't give out a medical advice to any individual on this show, since care is dependent upon the totality of a person's health. To have the specific question answered, the listener should speak with their physician. However, we do know, based on a study from Lancet Rheumatology involving 72,000 people from the United Kingdom, that the so-called NSAIDs non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen don't worsen the illness or cause death in hospitalized COVID-19 patients. What the researchers did was check the health records of 72,000 hospitalized patients and they identified 4,200 who had taken an NSAID in their previous 14 days before being admitted. They then compared their hospital course against those individuals had not taken this type of medication. What they found was that the clinical outcomes were similar in the two groups, with a mortality rate of 30.4% amongst those who took the medication and 31.3% amongst those who did, a difference that was not statistically significant.
0: Robbie, our good news segment is valued by listeners looking for something positive in the pandemic. What is the good news this week?
1: As we said at the top of the show, the really good news is how effective the vaccines are. Another positive development was the announcement by the CDC that people who are fully vaccinated against COVID-19 don't have to wear masks or physically distance, regardless of whether they're inside or out, assuming the other individuals are vaccinated. And of course, that's a big assumption. The decision was based on three large studies, around the efficacy of the vaccine. One study from Israel showed a 97% effectiveness at preventing symptomatic infection. The second study among healthcare workers showed the vaccines to be 90% effective at preventing both symptomatic and asymptomatic infection. And a third demonstrated that both the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines are 94% effective at preventing COVID-19 related hospitalizations among adults 65 and older the group at greatest risk of dying, and the one some scientists feared might not mount as stronger an immunity in response to being vaccinated. The good news is that the vaccines work and that they're extremely safe. We should tell our listeners every week this piece of good news, unless something scientific changes in the future to erode that incredible level of success. Similarly, in the good news category, are the efforts around maximizing vaccination. The Kentucky Lottery will be giving out free tickets for the Kentucky Cash Ball with a top prize of $225,000 to people who get their first or second COVID shot between now and May 21st. And in New Orleans, a vaccine administration site gave out a free pound of boiled crawfish to anyone who showed up on May 13th between 4 and 7 p.m., The good news is that we continue to make progress, and unless something changes that's unforeseen right now, tomorrow should be better than today.
0: Rabbi, we've talked about the higher risk of severe disease on this show when it comes to diabetes and lung disease. Uh, Both totally make sense. What about heart disease?
1: Jeremy, as your question implies, researchers have identified a significantly higher risk of death in patients with heart problems from COVID-19. In the journal Hypertension, scientists reported a five-fold increased mortality rate for patients with the reduced ability of their heart to pump blood compared to people with normal heart function. When the researchers looked at the heart's ability to pump 25% of the total blood that is ejected in the earliest phase of cardiac contraction cycle, They found this to be the most sensitive indicator of normal versus reduced heart function. The study included both 129 patients from Wuhan, China, and 251 patients from South London, England. The average age of the patients was 58 years. Although the researchers were clear about diminished heart function leading to a higher risk of death, What they couldn't ascertain with certainty was how much of this reduced heart function existed before the person became sick and how much was in response to the infection itself. But in either case, maximizing heart health would be beneficial, similar to what we know about underlying lung disease, obesity, and diabetes. And our nation hopefully coming out of this current pandemic will put greater energy and focus into avoiding chronic disease and making sure that we prevent to the extent possible complications from those diseases, whether they lead to diminished heart function, lung function or immune body response. Jeremy, how closely do you and the people in your social network follow the recommendations of the CDC and other governmental bodies? And how much do you take them to consideration, but make your own decision and not feel an obligation to follow them as letters of the law?
0: Robbie, for the people in my social network, it varies quite a bit. You know, I have friends who are still avoiding leaving the house unless necessary, even though they're vaccinated, um, and others who haven't been wearing masks since they were vaccinated. I'm officially two weeks from my last shot today. I'll uh, still wear a mask in a business or place that requires it out of respect. But that being said, I won't be probably wearing one in public if it's not required from now on. Uh, The science says I'm safe now. That being said, I think uh, everyone I know on both sides of the aisle has been extremely frustrated with the confusing and mixed messaging from, you know, the CDC and, and Biden administration. Seeing the president and vice president wear masks outside or in a room with other vaccinated people after they've been vaccinated when the guidelines had said that it was okay, was confusing for many people. Uh, I've had people ask me if vaccines work, why are they still wearing the masks in those situations? I I think the messaging was confusing for everyone. And with the CDC a few weeks ago, it was uh, double masking everywhere for the foreseeable future. And now all of a sudden no more masks Uh, for the vaccinated in such a short period of time, there couldn't have been that much new data, right? Uh, I think the messaging from the CDC needs to be more consistent, better explained, and easier to understand for lay people. I also think our elected officials should be following the science and not risk people doubting the efficacy or safety of the vaccine or making people think that there is any sort of political theater or spin involved with the handling of the pandemic. Like I've said before, you know, science is science, and I want consistent guidance based on science, get the politics and get the spin out of science and out of public health. Robbie, like I answered in your question to me, a lot of people are frustrated with the messaging from the CDC and Biden administration, why the pulling of the masking mandate now versus a couple of weeks ago when we're told we're gonna to be you know, double masking for a long time. Uh, was there any major evidence that changed in the last few weeks? Uh, Why were the vice president and president wearing masks indoors around other vaccinated people and on Zoom calls uh, or outdoors when no one's around? Uh, This was much more conservative than what the CDC was recommending at the time. I think this has been causing a ton of doubt, like I said, to the safety and efficacy of a vaccine and has caused needless and countless conspiracy theories. Uh, Why hasn't there been messaging on the importance of a healthier lifestyle either, when we know how dangerous the comorbidities are when it comes to someone that has a COVID infection? Robbie, what are your thoughts on the messaging from the government? How can we make the messaging from them more consistent, easier to understand, and easier to trust?
1: So, Jeremy, you're absolutely right that the messaging that we've gotten has been contradictory and confusing, Some of the problem, by the way, is that the CDC doesn't actually get to make rules and regulations. They only get to make recommendations. The only place where the government can mandate policy is in federal buildings or in airplanes, trains, and buses that travel interstate. As such, the CDC can make a pronouncement, as it did this week, and each state can have its own mandates, the two of which are identical, and we're seeing that. We're seeing states with Seemingly identical circumstances, some maintaining masking and some allowing people to take it off who, in quotes, have been vaccinated. And then there's the confusion created by the CDC itself. The CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, said that people did not need to wear a mask indoors, assuming that the other people are vaccinated. But then the federal government has continued to require them on planes, trains, and buses, areas where the federal government can set the regulations. You know, what's the difference between an airport and a supermarket? Why is it okay to take them off in a supermarket, but you have to keep it on in an airplane? It hasn't been explained. And how should we delineate who's been vaccinated so that people can know whether it is safe to take it off in the indoor spaces, the number of questions still is far greater than the answers. The federal government is also going to continue requiring masks in prisons, where authorities can be almost certain who has and who's not been vaccinated. Now, this inability to recognize the danger of contradictory advice has plagued not only the CDC, but also the FDA throughout this pandemic from the first day that the virus has come ashore. A basic question and the one you're asking is if vaccines are highly effective, why make vaccinated people wear a mask at all? First, we know that they are highly effective. Among among 117 million fully vaccinated Americans, only 9,247 have tested positive for COVID-19 and their illnesses have been almost always mild. In fact, Director Walensky highlighted a study from the New England Journal of Medicine that showed that the current vaccines are 89.5% effective, even against the more transmissible B117 variant from Great Britain, which is now the dominant strain in the United States. Now, there are some reasons why the CDC could continue to recommend continued masking. The first is our inability to know who's vaccinated. And if you can't tell who's vaccinated, then masks would control the prevalence of COVID-19, at least until we had enough people who were immune to create herd immunity. And if that's their thinking, then why did they recommend that we take the masks off? But maybe they're fearful of the new variants. But if that's their thinking, we're gonna be fearful of new variants for months or even years to come. Maybe the confusion is we don't know how many people are safe in a given space, so why not tell us the studies are being done and when they're gonna be published? You know, the possibilities are huge, but pronouncements being made without context or a plan simply leads to fear and distrust. And if the issue is we have to make certain that only vaccinated people remove their mask, and everyone else keeps their mask on, then why is the government not supporting a universally recognized vaccine passport? I mean, I know why, because it's unpopular, but that should be the role of the government. And the issue is not being pursued. In fact, the government has taken a hands-off approach to creating this type of vaccine passport. We should have seen this day coming not just for the past 100 days but for the past year. We should have a clear strategy explicitly stated by the highest of officials and that has not been the case ever since this pandemic began. The CDC should have explicit and clear recommendations a detailed explanation of the seemingly contradictory, but it doesn't. And the result is the uncertainty, confusion, and distrust and the result is the uncertainty, confusion, and distrust that you reference. In fact, in a poll of 1,300 people published by the highly respected Robert Woods Johnson Foundation and the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, only 52% of Americans had a great deal of trust in the CDC. And trust in other governmental agencies was even lower, 37% for the NIH, 37% for the FDA. The past year has shown them to be politically influenced and poor communication of what should be explainable information and even explainable contradictions with details about how resolution will be reached. But all too often, the various agencies have reversed their course as soon as a week or 10 days after an initial announcement, a time during which no new science is published. Jeremy, it's almost impossible to imagine that a teeny virus with only a small amount of genetic material could mox the best scientific minds in the world's most advanced research nation. But it has. Jeremy, let me ask you a final question. If your son were 12 and not six, knowing everything we've talked about today and everything that you've read, would you vaccinate him? And if yes, why? And if no, why not? Uh, Robbie, I
0: know this might be a little bit of a controversial take, and my answer is going to be no, I wouldn't yet. Um, I know uh, the situation is different, but in my mind, it's sort of similar, and this is the situation under a reference, but, uh, uh, and it's kind of the same va- approach that I took to the vaccine. Uh, as you know, I'm kind of a tech nerd and often an early adopter of new tech. I like to buy a lot of the, the fun new tech on day one. Um, And even though these products get tested in small groups uh, of test consumers before they launch publicly, launches of new tech products are often riddled with large and unexpected problems. Uh, It's much safer to wait and buy a product. However, I'm very impatient, and I, for example, got the new Xbox on day one. It had a ton of issues, and I had to send it in to get a new one. Both that and the new PlayStation have had a ton of launch issues, as with many new tech products, And it takes a while uh, to get the tech and everything working right. Now, a few months later, all the kinks have been worked out and they work great. And I want to give the vaccine uh, time to be distributed to children that age in mass for a little while before I feel comfortable giving it to my son. I don't want to be a quote unquote early adopter of a major rollout when it comes to my son's health. I'm sure I'll get him vaccinated and it won't wait too terribly long. I just want to play it a little extra safe with his health as I'm much more protective of his than I am my own. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, FixingHealthcarePodcast.com and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website, or send us a message on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth, and have a great day.